Amen. <clears throat> Acts chapter 4. And uh, we're going to begin in verse 1 and go down through verse 12 this morning. Acts chapter 1. If I was to say to you, what is the most offensive claim of biblical Christianity? Okay, what is the, what is the truth that if you say it, creates the most friction in your sphere of influence, in your school, in your workplace, amongst religious friends, what is the most offensive thing that you could say? All right, Jesus is the only way. You want to get in trouble in our world? Say that. Okay? Why is that true? Okay? It's true because the world has changed dramatically. The rise of what we would call postmodernism or relativism about truth, about the notion that there are our absolutes that should govern how we live and experience our lives. Okay, philosophically, the world in which we live has shifted. People are unsure about moral boundaries. People are unsure about whether there even is such a thing as absolute truth that applies to everybody, everywhere, at all times throughout history. That's, quite frankly, that's the world that we live in. That's the struggle. We also have something else happening. Okay, and we could call it, if you want to call it multiculturalism, uh, in our country, the world has, in many ways, come to America. We live in a, a unique part of America that is, I guess I use the word abnormal, okay? It's, it, we live in a relatively unmixed area. But in many parts of our nation, uh, you, could, you could go and visit various cities in America and, and you will feel like you are a minority. Why? The world has ethnically, in many ways, come to America. Along with that, what has happened? Okay, along with that, there has been a large rise in a Muslim population in America. There are more worshiping Muslims in America than there are professing Presbyterians in the United Presbyterian Church of America today, which formerly was one of the largest denominations in America. Okay? Many Hindus have come into our culture, into our country, into our world. I was out riding my motorcycle last Monday Western Pennsylvania, if you're familiar with the place called the Tuscarora Mountains, okay, just go out Route 78, pass over 81, and just make a right, and you just get lost in all this very beautiful country. I was riding on a road, I think it was Route 895, came across this amazing building on the left-hand side. I said, what is that? I mean, we were out in the middle of nowhere, okay? It's like, I don't, I don't even know what to compare it to around here. I, I, I really can't. Uh, big, big apparent temple. Saw a guy walking along the road, stopped and said, hey, he said, what is that? He said, it's a Hindu temple. And we're talking in the middle of nowhere. I said, how many people come here on a weekend? Six to seven hundred. I mean, I, I'm in the middle of nowhere. I'm like, what? It, it just stuck out. Okay, now, look, here's what's happened. Okay? The, this <clears throat> influx of people from, from various perspectives has raised a challenge for the Christian church and for the idea and notion of biblical truth. Okay, what's the most offensive claim of Christianity? Biblical Christianity. Not Christianity in the broader sense, but biblical Christianity. It's that Jesus Christ is the only way to heaven. That hope can only be found through the death, burial, and resurrection of our Savior Jesus Christ. That's, that's what biblical Christianity teaches. But we live in a world where more and more people are believing all kinds of different things. So when you say that Jesus is the only way, you are drawing a line in the sand and saying that those people that don't have Jesus will spend eternity separated from Him. The biblical answer to that statement is yes. 
Yes, the Bible teaches that hope for change and for eternal life is found only in Jesus Christ. But in the world that I live in, that, that claim, that proposition is difficult to make, isn't it? I think it's the reason that often we're relatively silent about our faith in Christ, even though we live in a world that is increasingly a more fertile field for sharing Christ. So the need to share Him has increased. Our willingness to share Him has decreased. Because we wrestle with the, the philosophical shift with this idea of other views and perspectives. We wrestle with, is biblical Christianity, is the truth about Jesus Christ the only way to have a relationship with God? difficult question to wrestle with. It's a dilemma. In Acts chapter 4, the Apostle Peter is going to make that claim. In verse 12, he's going to say, salvation is found in no one else, for there is no other name under heaven that has been given to men by which we must be saved. Well, that's the claim that Peter makes. That apart from Jesus Christ, there is no hope of a relationship with God. That's foundational to the text that we're going to look at this morning. Now, let me give you the context of this. Chapter 3 and chapter 4 are really tied together in the book of Acts. Okay, In the beginning of chapter 3, a miracle has taken place. A, a clearly bona fide miracle that if you go over to verse uh, 16 okay, of chapter 4, look at what it says. It says, everybody living in Jerusalem knows that they have done an outstanding miracle and we cannot deny it. Okay, so the, the healing of this man who was born cripple, who after 40 years was delivered from being lame, that was a miracle. That, that They're saying no one can deny that. Okay, that was clear. You would think, okay, that if that kind of an event took place, that there would be an overwhelming flood of people moving towards faith in Jesus Christ. Why? Because this man was healed in the name of Jesus, you would expect that there would be a flood of people moving towards faith in Christ. And the answer in a, at a certain level is that, yes, there are many people that come to faith in Christ as a result of that miracle. But there is an opposition that also rises up as that response of faith to Jesus is given. And so chapter 4 picks up on kind of the, the middle of this sermon that Peter is preaching. At the end of chapter 3 in verse 26, it said, he says, when God raised up his servant, Jesus, he sent him first to you to bless you by turning you from your wicked ways. Okay, so the, the purpose of Christ's coming was what? To cause people to say, I am going in a wrong way. The wrath of God was poured upon Jesus. I need to turn from my personal rebellion against the rightful rule of God and flee to Jesus Christ as the means of hope. That's why Jesus came. Okay, to change our perspective about our self-righteousness and about false religion and to give us a clear understanding that hope for change is found in Jesus only. Okay, and that, that's the biblical stance. Okay, that's not my personal stance, meaning it's not true because I believe it. That's what the Bible teaches. It's what I personally believe. Okay, but me believing it doesn't make it true. It's what God's Word says. Jesus came to turn us from our wicked ways. Now, what happens then at the beginning of chapter 4 is the priest and the captain of the temple guard and the Sadducees came to Peter and John. They came up to them, got in the face of them while they were speaking this to the people. That hope for change is found in Jesus. So they come up and they get in their face. 
the captain of the guard. He's kind of like the chief of police of the temple precinct. Okay, and then all of the, the religious leaders, the, the wealthy, the well-to-do, the people of influence in Jerusalem in the first century, they come and stand in front of them. And you would say, okay, so what's wrong? Verse 2. They were greatly disturbed. Okay, and the word here carries the ideas of being uh, exasperated, disturbed. I'm losing that word. Exasperated. I'm afraid another word is going to come out. I don't want to, I don't want to say it. Okay? So the, the frustration, at, what do you do with these guys? They've had, it's, the idea is they've had it with them. Why? Because in their proclamation of the name of Jesus, what are they doing? They're pointing a finger of guilt towards those that, that had called for the crucifixion of Jesus, which was this exact group of people in this exact place. Okay, so that's, that's the courage with which Peter begins to speak hope in the name of Christ in this setting. Religious leaders come, they begin to express their frustration, uh, they arrest them. Uh, the text goes on to say, verse 3, they seized Peter and John because it was evening, and that simply is to say there wasn't enough time to put them on trial then. They put them in jail until the next day. Okay, it doesn't necessarily mean that in this case they're torturing them, but they're beginning to experience what? A consequence for the proclamation of the truth that hope is found in Jesus only. Okay, that that claim is doing what? It's causing tension to rise in Peter and John's life. Verse 5, The next day the rulers and the elders and the teachers of the law met in Jerusalem. Annas the high priest was there, and so were Caiaphas, John, Alexander, and the other men of the high priest family. They had Peter and John brought before them and began to question them. By what power or what name did you do this? Okay, here's to me is what's fascinating, okay? The fact that this man has been healed is beyond question. Okay, but this tells you a little bit about what? About the kind of the hardness of our heart towards the truth that God wants to come to us. They're, they're not debating whether or not something impossible has happened. They're conceding the point. He has, in fact, been healed. But what gave you the right to do that? Okay, th their problem is what? We're the powers that be here. And if you want to function in this realm, you need our approval. You need our credentials. Peter and John are from where? They're from Galilee. These are the people that, that live out in the boonies. They live in the Tuscarora Mountains. They've come to New York City. And what are they doing? They're working in a way that is irrefutable. So what does the religious establishment do? Instead of saying, you know what? What you're saying about Christ is right. We need to turn from our sin and to faith in Jesus. No, instead, their, their power structure is threatened. Their financial stability is threatened by this miracle. And so they begin to resist Peter and John. So they say to them, okay, tell us. By what power and what name, that is what authority, that's the idea of name here, did you do this? Now, I want you to notice Peter's reply, verse 8. Then Peter, filled with the Holy Spirit, which I'll come back to momentarily, said to them, rulers and elders of the people, and I, I, just, I just say this, okay? As they proclaim truth in the name of Jesus, what's happening? Tension is rising, right? They're living in obedience to Christ. They're proclaiming the name of Christ. They're exercising their apostolic authority over sickness in the name of Christ. 
And as they walk in obedience to God, what's happening? Tension is rising. You find that frustrating as a Christian? You start doing what God told you to do and you start experiencing the tension. You're saying, what is going on? Okay, that's exactly what's going on for them. God is using the tension and the pain to draw attention to the name of Christ. And he will do that through our lives over and over and over again. This man in this story was lame. He was a cripple for 40 years. Why? It's a hard question to answer. So that God, through the name of His Son, Jesus Christ, through people that He has redeemed from their sin, could exercise the power of Christ, redeem this man from his crippledness to glorify the name of Christ. Forty years in that position so that one day God could, in an irrefutable way, rescue him from the burden and slavery of his life to give to those people a picture of what? God can do anything. God can rescue you from your greatest, whatever your greatest struggle is. Guess what? God can break decade-long struggles. That's the thought. But as that truth is proclaimed, the fascinating thing is that tension is rising. The religious establishment is uncomfortable with the proclamation that what they had done was murder. That's what verse 15 of chapter 3 says. You murdered the Son of God, the author of life. Peter lays it at their feet. Now, as he starts his defense here, here's what I want you to notice. Tension is rising, but the tension is not rising because Peter is being arrogant and rebellious against leadership. Okay, verse 8, I think, makes it clear. Peter, filled with the Spirit, confidence, boldness, courage, he addressed them as the rulers and elders of the people, which is to say what? You guys have that position. I honor that position. Again, you find this humble man approaching those that were guilty of a serious crime from the perspective of God. And what does he do? He gives them the honor that they are due in the earthly sense. Okay, he, he exhibits a respectful tone. And I think one of the lessons that jumps out is that I don't need to create trouble with people. Okay, you'll have enough trouble if you just make the claim that Jesus Christ is the only way to have hope for change in your life. That claim in and of itself will get you in enough trouble. You don't need to cause any. I think Peter knew that. Now, verse 9, what happens? Peter says, if we are being called to account today for an act of kindness shown to a cripple, and if we are being asked how he was healed, and some of your translations may have there the word how he was saved, because it's the same word that's used in verse 12. Saved meaning what? How this crippled man was rescued from the slavery of being lame. Okay, Peter says, is that the issue here? Okay, he puts it on the table. He says, then I want you to know this. Okay, now what is this? All of a sudden you find Peter with an unbelievable degree of courage, boldness. Know this, you and all the people of Israel. It is by the name of Jesus Christ of Nazareth. Wow. Okay, what is he doing? He is being very specific. If you wanted to identify who someone was, you would say their name and then you would attach the town that they're from. You would directly tie them to this name, this lineage. That's what Peter is doing. And, and, and unequivocal acknowledgement that this healing was through Christ, whom you crucified, but whom God raised from the dead, that this man stands before you. He, Jesus, is the stone that you builders rejected. And notice the personal pronoun, you rejected him but he has become the chief cornerstone. And then he goes into verse 12. 
Okay? So the first thing I see in this text is this. When you proclaim hope and change in the name of Jesus, what happens? Tension may rise, even though you're doing it in a respectful way. Why? Because the claim of Christ, the exclusive claim of Christ, is not a term or a statement that you can make if you desire to be someone who is popular. Okay? The claims of Christ, when they're made, when they're shared, are not, they don't, they're not going to make you look good. They're not going to exalt you. It's all about exalting Him and saying that hope and change is found in Jesus. Now, who is this group of people that have called Peter and John in? Okay? Now, here's the thing I think that is very important when you look at, at where they're standing. Okay? This is the same court that just a few months before had called for the crucifixion of Jesus Christ. I think there is, there is no way that Peter does not understand where he is standing. Okay? There's no way that Peter does not know that the ones that I am standing before and proclaiming hope in the name of Jesus are the ones who called for his death. And he lays that burden at their feet. The aim of the pressure against the apostles is what? Okay? The aim of the pressure against them is to silence them, to get them to stop talking about the name of Christ. That's the, the purpose. That's why people give you the reaction they give you when you talk about Jesus. Why do people give that sneer, that kind of downgrading to you? Okay, it's because they would rather that you be quiet about the name of Christ. And I think the question we have to ask ourselves, is that an option for us as Christians to fall into silence about the name of Christ? Now, what happens in this text is that the apostles are arrested, but the gospel is not arrested. Okay, and I love what happens. Look at the end of verse, verse 4. It says, Many who heard the message believed, and the number grew to about... 5,000, which is an increase of 2,000 beyond the 3,000 from chapter 2. Okay, well, what's amazing about that? What's amazing about that is that the pressure's coming against to silence and shrink the Christian community when it's actually serving to do what? It's actually serving to expand it. That's the power that is present in the name of Jesus. So the disciples needed to remember, and if you and I are going to be effective in sharing the truth of Christ, okay, we need to remember that sharing the truth of Jesus Christ will often bring tension into our lives. Am I willing to deal with that tension? Here's what I believe. I believe that most of us as Christians have become very good about avoiding tension in relationship to Jesus. We have become very good about not speaking the truth that would get us into any conflict or trouble or tension. Okay? Peter and John did not see that as an option. Why? Because they believed that Jesus was the only way. And so they were willing to endure in their personal experience tension... So that what? So that the truth of the name of Christ and the cross work of Christ could be known by the people with whom they interacted. So that's the, the first thought. Second thought I want you to see is this. It's found at the beginning of verse 8. Then Peter, filled with the Holy Spirit, said to them. Verse 13. After Peter's done speaking, there's this reprieve. It says, when they saw the courage of Peter and John and realized that they were unschooled and ordinary men, they were astonished and took note of them that they had been with Jesus. Okay, what causes Peter and John to become effective witnesses in this case of hope and change that's found in the name of Jesus? What changes them? I mean, fascinating, isn't it? This is the place where Peter had completely failed in the past. Right? It was in this, in this court that Peter had fallen silent, had denied the name of Christ, and said, I don't know him. Now, what is he? He's a man who is 
verse 8 says, filled with the Spirit, and as the audience observes him, they say, wait, he, he has a remarkable courage that is not typical for unschooled and uncredentialed men. And there's a sense in which there, there is a degree of, of, of amazement and shock on the part of the audience. How do you account for the change? I think they, you account for the change by the beginning of verse 8. Peter is now filled with the Holy Spirit. Okay? God has come. Okay? And what is he fulfilling? I think he's fulfilling the promise that Luke gives us in Luke chapter 21 and verse 12. Jesus said to his disciples, Before all this, they will lay hands on you and persecute you. They will deliver you over to synagogues and prisons, and you will be brought before kings and governors and all on account of my name. This will result in your being witnesses to them, but make up your mind not to worry. Okay, what happens? When tension rises in relationship to our proclamation of Christ, what do we tend to do? We tend to get nervous. We tend to get panicky. We tend to get fearful. Okay? And what's happening for Peter and John? They're filled with boldness. Jesus says to his disciples, when this happens, make up your mind not to worry beforehand how you will defend yourselves. For I will give you words and wisdom that none of your adversaries will be able to resist or contradict. Okay? Where's that going to come from? Well, Acts chapter 1 and verse 8 says that's going to come from the work of the Spirit. So the Spirit of God has come upon the apostles, and now they are filled with the Spirit. Fear in relationship to sharing has dissipated. God has said to them, when you get there, Peter, don't worry. Verse 13, what's the result? Peter functions in a way that is unnatural to his makeup. Okay? They, they, the, the, the religious leadership looks at them, and what do they say? They say that they are unlettered and illiterate men. They lack credentials. The two words that are used here in the Greek are fascinating. One is agramatos. That is, they are without grammar, without training and letters. The second word is strong. We get our word idiot from it. It's the word idiotes, which means what? It means that they, they just, when you call someone an idiot, what are you saying? You're saying, you just don't get it, do you? You, you're, you're ignorant in that you just have no knowledge, no training in this area. They looked at Peter and John. What did they say? They were common, utterly ordinary, average men. And yet, what could they identify in them? They could identify in them a, a, a courage and a, and a savvy in their communication that was not humanly explainable. And they're, they're mystified. They're stunned. How could this happen? And folks, look. This is, I think, what our desire should be in sharing our faith in Christ. Not that, that we're, we're nervous and kind of jacked up in doing it, but that there's this settled confidence in the work of Christ that, that allows us, by the grace of God, to be filled with the Spirit of God in those moments to communicate with, with calmness and with firmness the truth about the cross of Christ. You see, that's why the Spirit of God came. God says to them, Luke 21, He says, when you get in that position, don't worry. Okay, well, how many, of you, how many of you would feel comfortable if you were pulled into jail and then pulled before a judge to testify to why you believe what you believe about Jesus? Most of us would probably say, I don't know what's going to happen. I don't know if I'm going to say what if they ask me a question I can't answer. All those kinds of things that we typically throw out there. Well, the audience that's watching Peter and John sees that they are people who lack fear and who are in an inexplainable way, bold. The religious leaders lacked 
a coherent explanation for what they were seeing. And this troubled them deeply. It attracted their attention. Why? Because they, they saw they were, they're unlettered men. They, they don't have credentials. They don't have letters after their name. They're not graduates of the, of the local synagogue or the local seminary. But they're speaking in a way that is unbelievable and inexplicable. They were men that were filled with courage. I believe that Peter, as he speaks in this place, is aware of the fact that he is taking his, own, his life into his own hands. To speak this kind of truth before the power brokers of the day, who just two months previous had called for the crucifixion of Jesus, was, in a sense, possibly be labeled as a mission of suicide. A death wish. But what does Peter do? He stands up with courage. And, and let me just define this courage. It's not a, a careless blind courage. It's not that Peter's standing up there totally clueless as to who these people are. I don't know if you may have been in situations like that where you're talking to someone and the person beside you is, I hope they know who they're talking to because it will affect how they communicate. Peter knows exactly who he's talking to and what does he do? He gives a bold proclamation of the fact that they had called for the death of Christ, that they had rejected the one that God had in fact selected to be his sacrifice on the cross. Peter lays it right at their feet and what does he say? After it was all said and done, what did God do? God raised him from the dead. Okay? Peter is filled with a, a courage that is a cool courage that is aware of the danger that is present, yet undaunted. Okay? He's not backing up from it. What is he doing? He's stepping up to it. Where's that coming from? That's not Peter. Who's Peter? Peter's the guy that denies and runs. But now filled with the Spirit, he is uncharacteristically changed. And they look and they're, they're, they're stunned. They, they lack a coherent explanation for what is happening. Now, the one thing I do want to point out to you is this. As we talk about sharing your faith in Christ and trying to overcome the obstacles that come in doing that and, and the wrestlings and the strugglings that we do in sharing our faith, this work is happening under the power of the Spirit of God. Peter didn't just get up that morning and say, you know what, today I am going to share my faith. You know, what is Peter doing? Peter's walking in the power of the Spirit. And what is he experiencing in that place? He's experiencing regular, continual fillings of the Spirit of God when opportunities for ministry arise. And I think that the lesson that we can learn from this text is something very simple like this. Every believer should expect repeated infillings of the Spirit when opportunities to serve and proclaim Jesus come. So that we don't have to be nervous. We don't have to think that the success of our sharing is utterly dependent upon us. These were unlettered men. And yet their communication of the gospel was very effective and very powerful and had a deep effect on the audience. What it tells us is that God does not need people with high credentials. Okay, I can't tell you how often people feel like, okay, I wish I could have had, you know, the pastor there to share the gospel with these people. Folks, listen, God puts you in circumstances and gives you the power of the Spirit to be an effective witness in those places for His glory. And here's what will happen. Sometimes as you do, that tension will rise. But the Spirit of God will also come and do what? He will give you the words to say. He will kill fear. He will create a sense of boldness and courage that even hopefully for you is inexplicable. So that when you walk away, you're thinking something like this. I am, I'm not that good. I don't, I don't have that degree of recall. But God filled me in that moment to be used by Him as an effective witness. And I thank Him. You see, a lot of times, what are we doing? We're assessing our capacities and our abilities, and we fall silent. 
Why? It's scary to share your faith in Christ. It's scary to share the truth that is the most controversial aspect of biblical Christianity, that hope and found is change in Jesus, hope for change is found in Jesus only. It's not easy to share. You need the power of the Spirit of God convincing you and giving you the capacity to share that good news with those that God brings into your sphere of influence. Peter winds up his discussion with verse 12. Verse 12, he says this. He says, salvation is found in no one else. For there is no other name under heaven given amongst men by which we... And do you love how he does this? Okay? There's no other name under heaven given amongst men whereby we must be saved. Okay, what what hasn't Peter done? Peter's not putting himself outside of the sphere of humanity, acting like he has a righteousness that he has achieved on his own, and he's saying to these poor souls spiritually, you need help from Jesus, but I don't. Now what's Peter saying? We all find hope for change in Jesus only. That's the message that he is, is boldly proclaiming in this setting. And I love the way this text falls together because the third thought is this, that hope for salvation is found in Jesus only. That's where, this is where Peter's going. This is the last thing he says. Salvation is found in no one else. There is no other name under heaven given to men by which we must be saved. Okay? Now why does Peter say that? I believe Peter says that because of verse 11 and verse 10. Okay? God heals a man delivers him through the power of Jesus' name from a lifelong struggle. Verse 11, God delivered Jesus from the struggle of death through the resurrection. And by that, he validated or affirmed the name of Christ as the source for hope and deliverance from death and sin. Okay, that's what's happening in this text. So, the claims that Peter is making that we would say are amazing and in a contemporary setting like we live in, these are jolting and in many ways offensive. Okay, and I think they are twofold. Salvation comes from no one else. Jesus is the only rescue for sinners. Salvation is found in no other name. Jesus is not a way to salvation. Jesus, in Peter's words, is the way to salvation. Now, you can ask this question. You can say, okay, is this something that Peter is coming up with as he finishes this sermon? Is this a a new truth? Okay, I think if you go back to John chapter 14 or verse 6, what does Jesus himself say? Jesus says, I am the way, the truth, and the life, and no one comes to the Father but by me. So the, the exclusive nature of this claim is not something new. It's something that Jesus Christ himself had said, and it's something that got him into a lot of trouble. Okay, Peter will later say, there is one mediator between God and man, the man, Christ Jesus. What is Peter saying? For salvation, hope for change, there is only one way. And that is through the Son of God who was crucified, who was buried, and rose again the third day. Now what is Peter saying to them? He's saying, you guys rejected him. Okay, why did they do that? Look back in chapter 3, verse 17. Here's what Peter says. Peter says, now brothers, I know that you acted in ignorance as did your leaders. Okay, so why did the leaders put Jesus Christ to death? Well, what does Peter say? They were ignorant of the full ramifications and identity of Jesus. But once the resurrection took place, what happened? By the resurrection, God put his stamp of validation and authority on the person of Jesus Christ. You crucified him, God raised him from the dead. 
You've rejected that stone, verse 11. God has made him the chief capstone. He is the prominent part that holds the Old and New Testaments together. That's the picture here. They rejected the one that ties it all together. Why did they do it? Okay, look, at one level, Peter says, they didn't, if, they didn't understand. Paul will later say, if they knew it, they would not have crucified the Lord of glory if they understood the full ramifications of it. So prior to the, to the, to the uh, crucifixion of Christ, I understand what Peter's saying. But I also understand that Peter is saying, after Christ is raised from the dead, and they know he's raised from the dead, you'll find as you read through the book of Acts, whenever claims about the resurrection are made, no one refutes those claims. They may dislike them, but they don't refute them. Just like with the miracle of this man that's healed. They're not debating whether he was healed in the name of Jesus. They're just saying they didn't like the way it was done or by who it was done. But that's the hardness of the human heart. What is Peter saying to them? He says, you know what? Prior to the cross, I understand. You guys didn't have the full picture. But now he's raised from the dead. In fulfillment of Old Testament scriptures, Psalm chapter 16 and verse 11, you will not let your Holy One undergo decay. Now you are without excuse. And Peter, with boldness, he presses that point home for them. And he does it in such a way that they, as they look at him, they say, where does he get this, this boldness, this, this undaunted confidence in spite of what this may cost him? They are stunned and amazed at what has happened. What is Peter saying? I think Peter is saying, and I think this is just very clear from the text, that hope for change, for forgiveness, can only be found in Jesus. There is nowhere else I can go. And this is, in biblical Christianity, and I, I just I want to be clear on this, this is the most exclusive claim of Christianity. Okay? It is the most exclusive claim. Because what does it say? People without Christ spend eternity separated from God in hell. Okay, that's, that's what Peter is saying. Okay? But it is also what? It is also the most inclusive claim. Do you understand who Peter is preaching Jesus to? He's preaching Jesus to those that, verse 15 of chapter 3, murdered him. Who's he offering hope for change to? He's offering hope for change to the religious leaders that acted in ignorance and along with that dishonesty about the guilt of Christ. Folks, do you understand that? To those that murdered Christ, he proclaims that there is hope for change. That to me is stunning. So it is the most exclusive claim. Salvation is only founded. Without him, you don't have hope. But it's the most inclusive. Why? Because whosoever will call upon the name of the Lord will be saved. So Jesus is at once the way, the truth, and the life. And apart from Him, there is no other hope. That, that's, the, that's the essence of this text. But in this statement of verse 12, there is an invitation. Whosoever will may come. Even those that had murdered the Son of God are offered in the words of Peter. Peter doesn't say, you're just written off. You're without hope. No, he preaches hope to them. And God, through the miracle, is preaching hope to them. See, the picture is this. If God could deliver this man from a lifelong sickness, could liberate him and set him free, he can do the same for you. Do you see? So that the healing is a, it's a salvation. And that's why Peter will say, by the name of Christ, this man was saved, translated healed. But the word is literally sozo, saved. Same word that's used in verse 12. 
by which you must be sozo, saved. Same Greek word. It's a, so this is a picture. Now, for clarification, let me just say this real quickly about other religions. If you wish to accept the best from all religions, or if you wish to say that all roads get to heaven, at least, and I give you this challenge, at least have the honesty to admit that this is not what the Bible or Jesus teaches. You understand what I'm saying? So as you look at this claim, if you're going to say, you know what, I choose to reject that, and I choose to accept that all roads lead to heaven, based upon what the Bible teaches, I beg of you, at least be honest. At least be honest. Intellectually honest. Another issue that arises, because that's amongst other religions. Does sincerity count for something? Okay? Does Jesus benefit those who do not trust in Him? Okay? That's a question you're going to have to wrestle with. Does Jesus help those, benefit those eternally who do not trust in Him? I think the clear claim of this text is that Jesus, in fact, does not benefit those who do not trust in Him. No matter how sincere they may be. Okay, and this is a difficult truth. All right, on Monday I was out in western, uh, out in the out in the, the mountains of Pennsylvania, headed east or west. I'm sorry, on Route 443. My friend came up and said to me, "I hope you know we can't get home heading west on Route 443." And I said, "I am aware of that, but I am utterly sincere in my desire to get home by going west." Okay. No matter how beautiful that road is, no matter how lovely it is, guess what? It's never going to get me home. Why? It's going in the wrong direction. Okay? No matter how sincere someone is, 2 plus 2 does not equal 3 or 5. No matter, how, no matter how sincere the student is when they put that answer on the test, the teacher doesn't grade it correct, accurate. Because, you know what? I think they intended well. Okay? The same thing is true of Jesus. Sincere belief in a wrong conclusion does not make the conclusion correct now understand this it's not to say that other religions don't have admirable qualities or attributes okay understand what i'm saying okay but it is to say that those admirable qualities and the sincerity of the devotees to that faith at that hindu temple in eastern pennsylvania does not give them the hope that jesus gives okay hope for change is only found in Jesus. That is the clear teaching of this text. The Bible is saying that Jesus is, in fact, the only way. And I conclude with this observation. Why is it then that we often do not share our faith? If Jesus is, and this is, the, this is where this brings us as Christians, if Jesus is the only way, if He's the only hope for change, why, why am I reluctant I'm your pastor, okay? There are settings in which I find myself pulling up, reluctant, okay? And the reason I'm saying that to you is because you probably think you're the only one that wrestles with that. Or that people with credentials probably don't wrestle with that, and us normal people, lay people do, okay? That's what the, Peter was a lay person. That's what they're saying. He's a layman. Where did he get this? The Spirit of God rested in him. He expected the Spirit of God to meet him in that place. And what was there? There was this bold proclamation of the name of Christ in respectful and loving ways. And I think, I think as we look at it, we, we, we need to realize that it wasn't that Peter got up there and was arrogant. He really let him have it. Hellfire and brimstone. 
That's not what happened. He got up and addressed them just as who they were, but had the courage to tell them the truth. Why? Because he knew that hope for change was only found in Christ. But we're silent, and so I ask the question, why? Why are we so quiet? Sometimes we'll say that it's fear. Sometimes it's a lack of knowledge. Sometimes it's a lack of opportunity. Those are the three most popular ones that I get from people. But can I say that I don't believe that that is the real reason? I think the real reason is that we lack confidence in the power of the Spirit of God. That's why we don't share our faith. Second, and this is the harder one for me to say, and it's the harder one for us to believe and accept. The greatest obstruction to my sharing my faith in Christ is my desire to, re to be respected and accepted by others. I want people to like me. I want to be respected. Intellectually, I would like people to see my faith as rational. I would like when I'm done for them to say, that makes good sense. But I hate it when they say, I'm glad that works for you. Because <laughs> then what do you say? There's something I didn't say that they needed to hear. Somehow, I didn't get it all to them. Because the, the gospel of Christ is going to do one of two things to you. Okay? And I guarantee you this. It's going to make you glad or it's going to make you sad. Okay? It's going to do... And, and, and you have to lovingly and respectfully... Proclaim the truth. Proclaim the truth to people that hope for change is only found in Christ. And the reason we don't do that, I believe fundamentally, I think that the issue that we need to go before God and say, God, here I believe is why. Because I want to be accepted. I don't want to live with tension in my life like Peter and John had to live with. I would urge you an alternative. I would urge you to take the second path. And that is rest in the power of the Spirit of God. Absorb this conviction that hope for change is found in Jesus. Sincerity is not a means of salvation. Many paths are not the way to heaven. There's only one way, and that is Jesus Christ. Let, let an appreciation for the atonement, let an appreciation for the cross work of Christ, let an appreciation for the truth that He was pierced for your sin overwhelm your heart with gratitude and with conviction and with love for Christ so that Talking about Him is just like talking about something else that you love and are passionate about in your life. That it just flows out. It's not, I have to, oh, I'm nervous about that. I don't get nervous about telling someone that I went for a beautiful ride on my motorcycle. I don't, just, I don't get nervous about that. But then a chance to tell someone about Christ and all of a sudden we're like, okay, and it's a rest in the power of the Spirit. Okay, let the Spirit of God cause you to love Jesus more, to see Jesus more clearly. And then take that message and begin to communicate that with people around you. May we give up on our enslavement to self-preservation and self-love. May we confess to God that I want people to respect more than I want them to know the love of God. That's the hard part. I want them to like me more than I want them to know the truth. And that's why we, oh, okay, that could hurt. So we, we pull up. You know what? Any good doctor is going to tell you, you get a problem, you get a problem. You need to get it taken care of. If you don't, do, you don't get it taken care of, you're going to die. That's what a good doctor does. He doesn't sit back and say, boy, this could really offend them. This could really hurt them, cause them to worry. You know what, folks? People worrying about their sin is a good thing. 
People worrying about the wages of sin is death and separation from God is a good thing to worry about. But most people don't know. Why? Because the average world religion tells you that you can get to God. You just try harder. You do more. You do better. The gospel of Christ is He came. Died the death He should have died. Bore the wrath of God that you should have bore. He rose again the third day. Is the exalted Christ. And if you cry out to Him, you'll find hope for change. You will find hope for change. He will alter the direction of your life. Love Him. Love others. And you will share the truth. Last May I was in New York City during Fleet Week. I was standing at the West Side Highway, right across from where the uh, Coast Guard vessels and the naval vessels all dock. I was standing on the street corner at a red light. Uh, a, a naval uh, corpsman walks up beside me. He was obviously completely drunk. Traffic's rushing by. And in my peripheral, I realized that dude is going to step onto the street. So what did I do? Well, in light of the peril facing him, I decided that I would yell to him, don't do it. And when I knew he didn't hear me, you know what he did? I grabbed him by the arm because I was completely intolerant of what he wanted to do. I didn't want to stand there and watch someone kill himself in front of me. So I just grabbed him by the arm and said, hey man, the light's red. I didn't care if he thought the light was green. I didn't, think, I didn't care if he thought it was safe to cross the street at that time. Now, was I intolerant or was I loving? That's the question we have to wrestle with. If a pharmaceutical company in Philadelphia, Pennsylvania, related to the University of Pennsylvania, found a cure for cancer, found a way that with one injection, one time, you could be healed for life from all cancer. And they started advertising, we have the way for you to be rescued from cancer. Would I think them intolerant or loving? Do you see that's very arrogant of them to think that they had the only cure for cancer, even though they actually did. Would I, would I consider them intolerant? Or would, or would I say, hey, if you don't share that with people, that's not loving. So we live in a world where we wrestle. Why? The world has come to us. There are many perspectives out there. We live in a world that wants to say there are many roads up the same mountain and they all end up at the top. But that would be a lie. Can't get back to New Jersey heading east. On Route 443. West. Yeah. See <laughs> if you're awake. You guys are intolerant. Okay? That's what we need to do. I didn't do that on purpose. Okay? Go, Did you do that on purpose? No, I, I'm not that smart. Okay? <laughs> do, do you see? Grabbing the guy by his, his jacket and saying, No. Is it intolerant or is it love? Was Peter intolerant when he said, you crucified the Son of God? You know what I think? I think that is the most loving thing that he could say to them. 
He was offering hope to the people that killed his Savior. That's love. But he couldn't do it in his flesh. Every time the flesh tried, Peter falls. But when the Spirit of God comes, what happens? Peter is like amazing. May God help us to share the truth that will make us very unpopular. And that is that hope for change is found in Jesus only. That's what the Bible teaches. Would you bow your heads with me this morning?